comes back to the line, it's time to score! And Neely on the power play, and it's one nothing for Portland. Pass cross ice, Hanson, one-timer, score! A man who always likes to shoot some hockey, put the puck down on the ice and slap it. Shot! Aiden Hill, a massive save! The Columbus Blue Jackets are pleased to select from the Western Hockey League's Portland Winterhawks center Ryan Johansson. Centering feed, shot and score, Ty Ratty went for the Portland Winterhawks and they advance to the second round of the playoffs. Everybody's going to take game misconducts anyway, so Sauer's going to get his money's worth. For veteran officials, that doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. So you're just asking about my background and when I started going to the game. So I moved here first of the year in 2005. Okay. And I'd been a, been a pretty significant hockey fan. I knew about junior hockey. Yeah, from I, where? Um, from the middle, middle of Nebraska. Oh, okay. So um, that's USHL country. Okay. So that's so that's the junior league you go to if you're going to go to NCAA. Okay. Kind of junior A out here, right? Yeah. It is junior A. And so then when I looked into it and I saw, okay, so – that what league do they have? Oh wow, that's junior hockey, but it's a real league. I was, yeah. You know, I was really excited about it. I'm looking at, and, and we're not playing collegiate hockey. We're playing NHL style. Hockey. Exactly. I've had people ask the difference, and I said, well, in college hockey, I lived in in Alaska for ten years, mm -hmm. and University of Alaska Anchorage uh, was was big up there. And in fact, we had some guys that uh, made the bigs from up there. Mike Peluso was one. Mm -hmm. He. Uh, was defenseman, big, tall. Uh, he was the enforcer, if you will. But again, in college hockey, if you fight in that game, you're out for the rest of that game and the next game. Um, not, and, not to mention full and, cages. And... Uh, exactly. In in major junior, uh, you get kicked out of the game after your third fight of that game. So uh, that's I guess. And also college hockey, even if you do some playoffs. You're only going to play 35, maybe 40 games over the course of the year. Yeah. 72 games in junior hockey. And, uh, and as far as Portland is concerned, you know, my God, they're traveling to, to Manitoba. Uh, and all of it usually by bus. They might go airplane, but that generally only happens if we get into the playoffs. Uh, and you know, these kids have to keep their studies up. Uh, because if they get a, a bad review at school, uh, they have to practice, but they don't get to play. Yeah. So it, it's good that, that the organization has that kind of leverage on it because that's vitally important. Exactly. I've seen several kids that have gone on not to great hockey careers, but just great careers, period, because they finished school. And if they didn't uh, sign a contract, the league continued to pay for their education until they got a degree. So, um, this will be a challenge. Yeah, should be. Um, but well, what I was saying is, you know, so 
when I became a Winter Hawks fan, mm-hmm. and I was looking at the tradition, you know, some you know greats that have played here, and I was really excited. And then, you know, when I learned how you had been doing the games, you know, for 25 years at that point or close to it, uh, and, 18 total, and when I stepped down in 2009, but. Okay. Yeah, that, that was a lot of games, yeah. And I was really excited about that tradition. And then the same with, you know, Scooter. And I was like, oh, man, uh-huh. this is really great, you know. And then, you know, and Williamson had been here for a long time at that point, And I really liked the idea of parlaying your playing career and your coaching career and, and all that. And then and then they never got out of the first round. And then all of a sudden it was chaos. And then all of a sudden the guys that had been there forever, you know, are moving on and, you know, no rats flee in the sinking ship, and and then and then we finally got you know back on top where we are now. But you know, I was really excited, you know, as you know, to come into a team with such a tradition like you know what you were a big part of. You know, yeah, it was. Uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, my first exposure to the Winterhawks, uh, believe it or not, um, I was living in Longview, Kelso. Mm-hmm when the transition came from the Buckaroos to uh, then the Winterhawks coming in because there was like a year there where there was no hockey. And by then I'm, I'm uh, 40, 45 miles north. <clears throat> and of course it wasn't, in my mind, uh, it wasn't the Buckaroos. It's, uh, okay, fine, another team coming in. Um, so that was in 75, 76, that area in there. 1980, I moved to Alaska. Hmm. And in 1985, I went to work for the company that managed the public facilities up there, which included the convention center and the Sullivan Sports Arena. That's where University of Alaska Anchorage played some of their hockey. And there was a fella that, uh, Bob Drankert was his name, uh, worked in um, Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a businessman there, and he wanted to have an expansion team and possibly put it in Anchorage. So he came to us, as well as coming to the league, and wanted to know if we couldn't get maybe some exhibition or some actual league counting games played in Anchorage. So now the investment here, you're talking about flying two teams up, on at least two, sometimes three occasions. And uh, the hotel, you know, the the whole nine yards, all the logistics. And in the process of that, of course, we were told, let's help them out as best we can. Well, I knew some of the hockey background. Um, I actually did the public address work for those games. I got to meet some of the ownership, Brian Shaw, uh, Mark Miller, and some of these guys from the uh, from the Winterhawks, and uh, also found out that that some guys had gone on to great careers. Uh, one fellow that was brought in to, to sort of help push this thing was a former NHL goaltender. His name was Ed Stanowski. He won the Memorial Cup from Regina back in '74, oh. and so he brought uh, a couple of other fellas, uh, Clark Gillies. Uh, Stanley Cup winner from the Islanders and uh, and so they came up to try to promote it and, and tell some stories which was really pretty good I moved back down to Portland uh, in early 90 
uh, stopped in, reintroduced myself and said, hey, if you ever get in a jam and you need somebody to fill in, I'd, I'd be happy to. And it was a very selfish reason. First of all, I, under, I understood the game. Secondly, I, I didn't do a bad job. And thirdly, it would be free hockey for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good seats too. Well, yeah, and 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 and, and, it almost, and it still is. But to be in that close at the Memorial Coliseum, because I sat right at the scores table. In fact, I was sitting right next to the uh, the visitors penalty box. And for me, it was almost as easy to to know the players from the opposing team as it was to know their own. Uh, usually, because the guys that came into the box, not all of them were they committed a penalty, but you know they weren't all jerks. Uh, they were obviously fired up, but there were some actually some pretty good guys. And uh, just to tell a few. Um, uh, scores, table stories, uh, which would include some referees and others. Um, some very good referees came out of the WHL that yeah. made the big leagues. Uh, Tom Cowell, uh, Kelly Sutherland, um, who's still out doing it, and um, Mike Hassenfratz. Uh, Kelly Sutherland wasn't very tall. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I used to have this thing with uh, with John Baduk, who we got in a trade from. Uh, from Victoria, and Johnny was was a pretty good guy, and I would sit in the scores uh, area there uh, behind the plexiglass. Come to the kitchen anytime soon, boys. I think nope. we're good. All right, good deal. Thank you. And uh, John would be across the ice by the the benches, and uh, I'd catch his attention, or he'd catch mine, and and I'd just smile at him. Well, he'd wind up and shoot a puck right at the glass. Oh, I just you know, laugh. Sometimes he'd catch me off guard, and I'd, I'd flinch like crazy because it was pretty loud down there. So one day I came in, and there was a brand new sheet of plexiglass right there, right in front of me. It wasn't all marked or scratched. It was beautifully clear. I could see everything. I said, oh, so what? Uh, had a piece break? <laughs> and, and that guy with the building said, yeah, John Baduke was shooting slap shots at it and hit it. And it shattered. I thought, oh my God, I've been sitting behind this the whole time thinking I was, I was, you know, uh, totally protected. Yeah. Well, when they put the new piece in, they of course drilled a hole so that the referee could speak. And they drilled it right in the middle from side to side and in the middle from top to bottom. Well, the first referee with that new piece of glass was Kelly Sutherland. Well, he skated up to say something and the hole was easily a foot to 16 inches <laughs> yeah, yeah. taller than Kelly was. And, uh, and we got a chuckle out of that. And then we would wind up uh, during uh, penalty calls, or especially when multiple players from both sides were involved. Mike Hassenfratz one time was uh, reading off from his, his little uh, notebook where he he would jot down numbers and who did what and then come up and relay the penalties. Well, as you know, and most of the fans do, that the signal for roughing is to make a fist in front and, and then extend your arm out like, like you're, you're punching. What Mike didn't realize is that the linesman was closer than Mike, who was fairly tall, than yeah. his reach. 
and as he said, two minutes for roughing, and his arm extended, he caught the linesman in the side of the helmet. Uh, we thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I could see that. Um, we did get some real characters uh, into the penalty box. Uh, Kamloops seemed to have uh, some uh, some guys that were fan favorites. And, uh, boy, some of these guys, they, they were quick with, with the story or knew what to say to maybe shut the fans up. That's we lost a, a really... Pretty, pretty big rivalry, Kamloops. Oh, absolutely. Then, and, and we had lost... Uh, this was at the start of their... Uh, there were time where they won two consecutive Memorial Cups. Okay. So this was back in the uh, late 90s. Yeah. And uh, Darcy Tucker, who had a nice long uh, career, uh, he came into the box and got an Aldi, and the fans would, uh, and, and, and Darcy would appreciate this, but they would uh, yell out, Darcy is a girl's name. In fact, my son is now 33. He remembers that quite well. Um, there's another kid, uh, Brad Lukowicz, was a defenseman. And he would always come in and, as you've seen, there's always somebody to man the penalty boxes on both sides. Uh, keeps order, make sure the door opens and closes on time. Well, every time that, uh, that Brad would come in, he'd ask the, uh, the minor official that was manning the box if he could come over and sit next to, sit next to me. And he'd come over and look at whatever I had written down. He said, so you need any help with anything? How's it going? And back and forth and on and on. And and then uh, his two minutes would be winding down. And he'd put his helmet on and grab his stick and step towards the door and said, uh, see you in a bit, <laughs> knowing that sure, sure enough he would be back. Another time, Daryl Hay at the Tri-City Americans. Uh, Don Hay is his dad, who won several Memorial Cups. Uh, Daryl was in the box and uh, could have been for a major. He was there for a while. He was taping up a new stick. And he asked me if he could borrow a marker. And I said, well, what do you need a marker for in the penalty box? He says, well, on the tape, I'm going to put my numbers so that everybody knows whose stick it is. I said, I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, eating and abetting, you know, the enemy. <laughs> yeah. He says, oh, come on. So fine. I, I gave him a pen and I said, on one condition. You score a goal with that stick, it's my stick. I said, okay, fine. So he wrote his number and you uh, scored a goal that game. The stick's at home. Yeah. At my house. And he took the tape off the blade and, and signed it. Very nice. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there, there's some pretty good guys there. Another guy, Scott Parker, he was kind of a heavy for Camus. And uh, we I'm, were. I'm going to try to get him on the show. I, it, I haven't had reached oh, out wow. to him yet. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he had some experience in this show as well as the big show. Yeah, uh, but he would always uh, get involved in whatever was happening and be in the box. Well, before the game, I went in there with some uh, athletic tape and a magic marker, and, and put a piece of tape on a chair, and it said, you know, Scott Parker. So sure enough, when he came into the box, there was already somebody else in there, and uh, and he'd seen it, and he says, "Hey, move! You're in my chair." <laughs> And sat there for the penalty. We we got kind of a kind of a uh, kick about that. The minor officials also. We used to sit there, and it was always a big thing. We'd we'd look around during the uh, first period. We'd all pitch a quarter in, and we'd all guess the attendance. Whoever was closest, they got the pot. It was usually you know buck and a half, buck seventy five. 
Well, we were putting our quarters in and making our guesses, and John Badoop was in our box. And so, you know, I don't want to exclude anybody. He says, hey, John, you want to be in this? He said, you know, what is it? We told him. He said, hell, I'll even throw the quarter in for you. And so we gave a guess. He won the pot that night. Yeah. A lot, lot of fun, interesting things uh, down there. There was one time, again, this was another uh, situation with Camlers. In the playoffs, and Mike Williamson was involved. Uh, Mike and, and one as, of the, as a player, uh, yes. Mike and one of the defensemen had gotten into it, and it had come push had come to shove. So they both came to the penalty box. And back in the day, we didn't have uh, the new um, divider sideboards that, that, that we have now, which includes the penalty box dividers. So it was fairly wide open. Just you and the holding uh, table, and, and right? Basically, I mean. there, there was a little barrier behind us, but, but nothing from the outer edge of the visitor's box to the outer edge of the, of the home box. Well, as, uh, as Mike and this other fellow, and his name escapes me now, as they come into the box, they're still talking. Oh, they're, they're, they're talking up a blue streak. And, of course, you know, as, as official scorers, we're kind of kind of giggling because, you know, there's three official languages in hockey. French, English, and profanity. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some of those Canadian boys, they can string that together pretty well. So we were laughing at that, and Mike just said something offhand, and I guess the Kamloops fella, he was really close to just boiling over, and he did. And before I knew it, he was already past uh, the guy in the visitor's box, myself, and the, the main score and the clock operator actually turned around and caught him, and I leaned back up, and we sort of pinned him up against that back railing. And while we had him all pinned down, Mike came over and hit him with the right. <laughs> and, <clears throat> ironically enough, this game was being uh, televised on TSN, and a very good friend of mine who played his hockey at the University of Alaska Anchorage uh, became a very good friend. Uh, he had just pulled into Kamloops, uh, checked into the hotel, walked into the room, dropped his bag on the bed, clicked on the game, and said, oh my God, what's Dan Falnick doing there on the thing? And then he saw the replay and figured it all out. So it's, uh, it's amazing how sometimes an event that you're at gets, gets spread all over the place. Uh, yeah, some, some scary times, too. Uh, we had a game against Spokane, and the boxes were full. There was four or five players in each box, and some words were said. And one guy stepped up on the chair, and then his other skated foot came up on the divider that was right next to my arm, like he was ready and willing to climb over. And that was, uh, that was a little spooky all of a sudden. About what year was that? Um, this was probably closer to uh, our Memorial Cup year, uh, 97, 98. 98, exactly. And uh, Spokane was very good then. Chris Mike Babcock. Well, they, was, hosted, they hosted that year in 98. They did, and they almost went there as the NHL champion and the host team, or the NHL, the WHL champion. Uh, that was that was an amazing year. Uh to know that, that going to the game, uh, there was a better than 
70% chance that you were going to win that game. Uh, we paid for it years later when there was a change in ownership. Uh, that's the year that we only won, what, 15 games? 17 one year, 11 one year, and then 19 and, the and, third year of that. And, and going in there and knowing there was a 75% chance yeah. that you were probably going to lose that game. Yeah. And we had, we had some quality players, too. Um, yeah, and it uh, it was hard to stay focused sometimes because... Uh, In the down years, you're saying? I'm sorry? In the down years, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, not everybody was all excited to be there. Uh, we knew we were going to be on the short end of the stick. The crowds started to drop. And uh, we were trying to, uh, to hold up the image of the team. And when I joined, 91-92 uh, was my first year. They were, uh, they, the Winterhawks and Camloops were pretty much the, the class of the WHL. And uh, a lot of respect between the two teams, also because they were great competitors. So, uh, with that ownership change and, and all of the tradition, and the loyalty that the team would have to to the fans, uh, to their employees, to their players. But uh, it didn't carry over necessarily. It's back. Believe me, it's, it has definitely come back under Mr. Gallagher and, uh, and Mr. Piper. So, uh, yeah, Winterhawk fans and Winterhawk players don't have to hold their heads down at all. There was another... Uh, Another situation where we uh, you'll have to edit this little part out. Sorry, I lost my train. I thought I had something, and I and if, if you need me to keep these thoughts a little bit more concise so that it's easier for you to edit, you just tell me. It's interesting when it comes to Winterhawk players uh, because there's always fan favorites. And the fan favorites may not always be the best players. Uh, a lot of them do get a lot of support. Uh, I thought one of the better players that we had when I was there was Steve Conowalchuk. Uh, heard the rumors that he was probably going to make the NHL. And he did have a nice long career. Wound up being the team captain in, uh, in Washington. And uh, I think finished his career in uh, Colorado with the Avalanche. He was, he was really good those couple of years in Colorado. Yeah, and then uh, of course now he's he's the head coach of uh, of our biggest uh, biggest rival. Uh, I knew there was something special about Adam Deadmarsh the first time I saw him, and uh, and there were other guys that they were almost as as capable. Uh, Brad Isbister certainly seemed like he had the right stuff. Uh, there's something about a goaltender that uh, everybody thinks that, oh, you know, when, when we get a good goaltender, oh, yeah, he's going to make the NHL. And it seems that a goaltender matures a lot later than a regular position player does. Uh, just before I came to the Winterhawks, uh, Byron Defoe was our goaltender, and it was easily 10 years later when he finally got his spot in the NHL and had a very nice career. And uh, and he played in the NHL um, 
not quite the same way that some of the Portland fans remembered it because it was easy to uh, it's easy to pile on a goaltender when he doesn't have a defense in front of him. Well, in that era, I mean, a good goalie gave up four or five a night. <laughs> well, that that's true. And uh, when I joined the league, I remember being told, Dan, if if your team goes into the third period with a four-goal lead, nothing is certain, nothing is safe. I said, really? And I heard some of the, the great stories of back in the day. Um, Brent Belecki, I'm not sure if he was a really great goaltender. Brent was only making 18 to 20 saves a game. Sometimes he had an incredible defensive run. But he made the saves that he needed to make. And he took us to our last Memorial Cup. Have we had better goalies since? Maybe, but it's... it's the goalie isn't, isn't the only position. You've got to have folks in front of them. Well, a lot of, a lot of people think it's... Curtis Muka was a really good goalie. I'm, I'm one of them, but did he have any sort of help whatsoever? No, no, he didn't. And then uh, also you you hear about uh, Carruth. Yeah. Uh, Carruth is, has moved up a little bit. I believe he's in the, the AHL now. He is, yeah. And uh, we've had guys that have have made it up that far. Uh, another one of our players, a fan favorite wherever he played, Marty Standish. Marty Mouse, because he wasn't very tall. Uh, I saw him once in the locker room, and he was the most buff hockey player in juniors I've ever seen. He was a physical specimen. Uh, he was also one that liked to fire pucks at me, uh, but only if I wasn't looking. Uh, there was a great interview that was uh, in the Oregonian. Uh, the Winter Hawks went a road trip. Mike Williamson is sitting up in front of the bus going over facts or figures or some information. And he hears this big commotion coming from the back of the bus. And without even looking up, he says out loud, Marty, knock it off. Just knowing that whatever was going on, Marty was in the middle of it. Um, the captain of the Boston Bruins, Zadino Chara, he played in the WHL with Prince George. He was tall back then. They came to Portland, and Marty skated right up to him, and all practically like, you know, looking at him just above his belly button, and looked up like, huh, you want to go? And the crowd loved it. Uh, the closest we've had to a Marty since then was maybe uh, Leipzig. I've heard a lot of comparisons. Yeah, uh, especially taking the drink out of the goalie's water bottle. That was... That was a classic. Yeah, Marty, a uh, good guy. Uh, I knew his billet family, and uh, uh, the uh, the Forney family. They uh, they billeted a number of players, and I was over there at a social function and noticed that uh, the family portrait on the wall had four people: uh, Rodney, his wife Teresa, who is now uh, sort of the head of, of billeting. Uh, their son, Cam, and Marty. He said, well, that's interesting. And Rodney just shook his head and said, you know, we told Marty. Marty, look, this afternoon, we're going to go over and have a family portrait done. So he 
said, oh, great. And he got up and went in, into his room and came back with a shirt and a tie and a coat. And I said, no, no, Marty, you don't understand. This is a, a family portrait. Well, just like a child. Marty's lower lip kind of, you know, powdered out. And he kind of hung his head and was moping around. And finally they felt so bad. I said, okay, come on. Let's go. And he's got the biggest smile of all of them in, in the portrait, hanging on the wall. Uh, he made uh, that, that same impression in Portland. Other teams hated him. Any other team in the league would have loved to have had him on their team. Uh, when he played in the AHL, uh, wherever he played, he was the fan favorite there. Uh, retired with the Oklahoma City team. And... Uh, yeah, he, he could probably run for mayor in Oklahoma City, and and I don't know if he'd win, but he, he'd be certainly a close second. Uh, the Hosa Boys, wow. Uh, it's amazing how the Winterhawk people were able to scout and find someone of that caliber. There's a lot of risk in that trade. I mean, no one no one thought that he was going to get sent down from Ottawa, right? No, uh-uh, not at all. And and then, of course, to come here and, and play as well as he did, and then to get hurt in, in the Memorial Cup final, uh, and then to go on and have an amazing career, uh, finally get his, getting his name on the Cup at least once. I want to say twice, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. I think, all, I think all three times in Chicago. I think, and, and, I think and, and, 2010 was, I think, the first one. I think so. And then, of course, his younger brother, um, Marcel. Yes. Uh, coming in, and uh, and actually, he wore Murian's number backwards. Murian wore number 18. Uh, Marcel came in, and he wore 81. Which is rather unusual, because Portland had been a fairly traditional team. Uh, they don't retire numbers. Uh, it's one through uh, 35, I guess, at the time. And then we started expanding. There was 39 uh, Jacobson for that number. Uh, then we had a 44. And as a 15-year-old, when Andrew Ferentz came and played his two or three games, it was over a long weekend, we knew right then, oh, wow, this kid is, is mature. Uh, he sees the ice very well, and uh, we knew that he was going to be a force. Uh, when we won the Memorial Cup in 98 that year, in plus-minus, he was like plus 70. It's not bad for a defenseman. No. Uh, wasn't afraid to drop the gloves. Uh, has proved himself. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows the story that he wasn't drafted to uh, try out at the, the Combine. Nobody invited him, and he wrote a letter to all of the oh, yeah, yeah. NHL GMs or owners and saying, uh, you, you know, it's not about size. It's about uh, ability and about finesse. So it's on Winterhawk's letterhead, I believe. But. And so now he's got his name on a cup, and he's the, the captain of the Edmonton Oilers. Did, did you see the story from a month ago or so where uh, – in Edmonton, there's a little girl who's like six or something that has something terminal, 
and it was a make-a-wish kind of thing he was involved in. Did you see that story? I did, and, and that doesn't surprise me uh, on a couple of different accounts. Um, first of all, uh, Edmonton is, is a class organization. It, it was uh, started out that way uh, during the Gretzky years. Uh, it continued to be that way. And it doesn't surprise me at all about Andrew Fitz. That, that picture of him in full gear, like downtown in front of City Hall or whatever, with that cartoonishly oversized rope all tied up. I mean, that was just a really, it was a really interesting visual. I mean, it was really, it was really solid. It, uh, it was funny. Uh, he was injured during uh, one of his times there and, and came up and sat up. Uh, in the, the Moda Center, then the Rose Garden, where I was sitting, and and uh, since I didn't really have that much of a chance to talk to him, it's hard to talk to him when he's playing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But since so, uh, can I call you Andy? Do you prefer Andrew? And he says, No, it's Andrew. So uh, we respected that and called him that, and always uh, always held himself uh, to a little bit. Uh, well, I'm not going to say a higher standard than others, but a higher standard that he set. And, and he, he always always stayed with that. Uh, I think for young kids that came up and had a chance to play with him, I truly believe that some of that rubbed off. We had some other fellas that came down uh, years later. Joey Hope was a favorite of mine. First, he was out of, out of Anchorage. And uh, not very big, very much like... Uh, like Andrew was, and he had this move that he would, as he's skating backwards, he would zig out away from the incoming skater and then back in and wound up with doing a hip check and, and totally taking the skater off his feet. And the first two or three times he, he got a penalty for interference, which I thought was uh, and, and just to... Uh, tell a story on myself. In my job as the public address announcer, uh, I was there to disseminate information. Uh, who scored? Who's the penalty on? Uh, what what general information, including during stoppages, some announcements. Uh, another thing that was very important for me to do was to let everyone in the building know when there was one minute to play. Uh, I got to the point where I I could probably count in all those years on two hands and have a couple of fingers left over the times that I was late for that call. There was one time coming up where it was like a minute 45 left in the period. Andrew had gotten a penalty, came to the box, and uh, it was an interference penalty. So I said that it was... Uh, Andrew Interference, as opposed to Andrew Ferrance. We were coming up on the one minute, and I wanted to get it, and I got it wrong. So uh, for several games afterwards, people would ask me to double-check and make sure that my penalties were, were properly announced, uh, and players. Uh, when I would keep score myself, I, uh, I just had a piece of lined paper and I would use a P for Portland and then the first letter of the other city uh, so that I could keep an ongoing record in case they added an assist later on or added penalties. 
Um, and we had a problem when there was an S, because that could be Seattle, it could be Spokane, um, it could be, uh, oh, K's were always trouble as well. It's Kelowna, Kootenai, Kamloops. Um, I, for whatever reason, would always wind up giving a penalty to Spokane, even when they weren't in the state. And uh, the uh, the Booster Club used to have an award that they would give out every year. It was called uh, the FU Award. It's very nice. It's made out of marble. And uh, a couple years in a row, uh, Scooter got that award. I uh, I won it one year. Uh, it had a microphone attached to it. Uh, I, I still have it. And it was uh, for... Uh, for having more cities involved in a hockey game than, than were actually there. Yeah. Uh, and everybody chuckled. And of course, you know, everybody that voted didn't apparently have any any foul-ups. Well, they do that with assists a lot of times, especially back then as far as guys that weren't even on the ice. Exactly. So you, so, yeah. so you doing it with penalties, I mean, that was in, in vogue at the time. Yeah, but, you know, somebody who supposedly you know, gave me that information, because technically... I didn't really say anything unless someone had given me the official. I could have made calls. I could have followed the game, but I had to wait and hear it from the official score. In fact, one of the very first times that I I had to announce this penalty, it really caught me caught me off guard. Um, you know about uh, hooking. Hooking is where you take the front edge of the skate blade, reach up and literally pull some, turn someone around or pull them down. Well, what I was not aware of is that you can take the back end of that stick and dig in and pull somebody down as well. And the official call there is butt end hooking. I didn't know that. You know, I've never heard of a butt end hook. Well, and and so makes sense. As, you can as, do it exactly. I, I never heard that. Well, and the penalty came up, and I the official score said, "Dan, it's butt end." Or I announced two minutes for hooking, and he said. No, Dan, after I turned the microphone off, Dan, it's butt-end hooking. And I said, yeah, right. I said, no, no, it is, and and you have to say that. I said, no, I don't. Said, Dan, yes, you do. That's the call. And and I found out also that there were other people within the building that reported to various different uh, uh, sources for hockey information. We had a guy there that after each period would call, like, uh, Canadian news service and let them know what the score was at the end of the periods, who scored goals, penalties, and, and how many saves were made by the goalie. He did that every period. So obviously it needed to be official. So I did say a correction. That's two minutes for butt end hooking. And I barely squeaked it out because I was laughing so hard into the microphone. And side note, just to think about how much the world has changed, you know, with the, the internet and the online score sheet and the, everything is just instantaneous now, or most of the time anyway, and to think about, you know, the way that we did it for 100 years or whenever we got a telephone anyway, as far as figuring out what the, what the other scores were. Well, it used to be the, the standard practice for both the home and the visitor radio station to have a patch that plugged into the house sound system so that as I made a call 
or as uh, any other announcer in any of the various ranks in the WHL would make a call, they could bring that up, and so everyone could hear that this was the official call. Yeah. Um, I had uh, friends in other cities that, that could hear that, could hear me there. I would also listen to Dean when we were on the road and listen to the other guys in the other cities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How does it sound when they do introductions? How does it sound when they do their goals, when they do their penalties? Pronunciations. Exactly, yeah, pronunciations were huge. Um, it was always uh, a real challenge to me to make sure that I got it right. Uh, they said, well, you know, what do you care about, you know, if you pronounce this guy's name right? I said, well, you know, his mom and dad could be listening. And if I'm going to give my players the respect to get it right, I should give theirs and hope that wherever we go, that those people are giving our players the same respect. We had a unique situation. Uh, we had uh, two brothers that were playing in the league at the same time. Uh, one played for Portland, one played for Tri-Cities. Dave Kamek, C-A-M-M-O-C-K. Um, second, third line winger, center sometimes. Um, uh, he could muck, he could grind in the corners. Uh, he'd stand in front of the goaltender and take the shots. He's a pretty, pretty stout player. Uh, his brother was pretty much the same way. So we're playing, and they came together with just a few minutes left in the first period, right in front of the scorer's area. And and not only could you hear, but it was one of those collisions where you could almost like feel it. And they looked at each other, and the gloves dropped, and oh boy, they just, they got into it. <coughs> it was one of those classic, uh, they grabbed the other jersey with their left hand, and they're hitting with the right. And they were taking turns. It was like, bang, 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 bang. And I'm looking around, and the guys at the scores table are kind of chuckling. I'm looking over at the bench when they finally get it uh, squared away. And Brent Peterson's got this big smile on his face. And, well, the boys come into the respective uh, penalty boxes. Not a word. Plays finally picked up, and I made the announcement. And of course, I said, uh, you know, fighting majors uh, on uh, Tri Cities, uh, Chad Cannon, Portland's Dave Cannon, five minutes each for fighting. Play picks up, finally, chances. Dave. Dave looks over, he says, Mom and Dad are going to be effing pissed when they hear about this. We lost it on the bench. It was almost tears we were laughing so hard. Uh, a highlight only in hockey, I guess. Yeah. We had uh, one of our first foreigners that came around here was... Uh, uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, we'll Great, thank you. I bring it up now, and of course, I, uh, I can't remember his name. He was from... Well, about when did they start bringing the Euros in? Uh, you know, it was probably... Well, Marion was like the second or third class, so it was probably 94, 95. I'll tell you an interesting situation. 
I'm in Alaska, as I told you. Okay. Uh, I'm with uh, the public facilities up there, and 89 going into 90, or was it 88 going into 89? As 88 going into 89, uh, Anchorage was, was trying to position themselves to get the bid for the Olympic Winter Games. So they wound up, the World Junior Hockey Tournament was going to be held in Anchorage. At the time that this happened, there were only five Olympic-sized, 100-foot by 200-foot hockey rinks in the United States. Three of them were in Alaska. So we were the, the, the host building, and I'm there working, and uh, of course the Soviet Union team comes over. They win everything. And... Before they have a chance to go back home, Alexander McGillney defects. Oh, yeah, yeah. Winds up going to play for the Buffalo Sabres. I come to Portland. I'm now with the Winterhawks. Uh, the Goodwill Games are going to be held in Seattle. So um, the uh, uh, former uh, PGA golfer from Portland uh, also did some promoting see his face and I can't think but it will come to me I'm sorry he sort of helped promote it a uh, Team Canada or Team USA versus this Soviet team in the Coliseum so I ask and I get to do the game so I'm fine with the US and the Canadian boys but boy that some challenges on the pronunciations <clears throat> one uh one of the players during that game, uh, very unusual situation, always was very calm and mild, still in the first period. He had uh, a fit on a penalty call, mouthed off, and was given a misconduct and sent out. Well, we found out after the game, it was planned, he defected here in Portland and then went on to a long career in the NHL with um, Detroit. And of course, it's too much hockey, I can't remember his name. So you get better off. Exactly, thank you, yes. Yes, because his younger brother wound up playing in our league too, I want to say for either uh, Spokane or one of those teams like that. He didn't, he didn't duck out in the middle of the game, did he? Did he take a misconduct specifically uh, just as an so escape they, 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 They'd send him back to the locker room. Well, he went back there, changed clothes, walked out. Yeah. And uh, maybe the only misconduct that guy ever picked up. Probably, at least in international play. And, and they, were, they were amazing to watch. Yeah, there's been uh, talented guys coming through. Um, You're talking about McGillney. You know, when he was a, his rookie year in the NHL, he put up 76 goals, which no one puts up those numbers anymore, particularly as a rookie. Yeah, well, and it, it's funny sometimes a uh, change in either coaching philosophy or a change in location. There was, uh, I'm not going to say borderline, but he 
he was lucky to be skating on the third line, maybe, uh, with the Seattle Thunderbirds. And something came up, and uh, Ken Hodge uh, let it be known that he'd be more than willing to take that particular player. So we got him for a song, and the song was something like, you know, Camp Town Races. It was an oldie but a goodie. It was like a fourth or fifth round Bantam draft pick. And the next year, Lonnie Bahanas lit him up and was the leading points getter in the WHL. One of the things that Brent Peterson said that actually Lonnie learned is that if you're going to play for a Brent Peterson coach team, you had to go both ways. You had to back check. Lonnie hated to back check. He wanted to be up close so he could get the breakaways, come in, shoot, and score. Um, but it's just amazing, just that, that one change. And uh, he was scouted by everybody. Uh, another interesting situation. I'm was, sorry. Was he was he on that Memorial Cup winning team? Did no, no, no. He was he was gone by then. But um, yeah, because there was some thought. Oh my God, you know, what are we going to do to to fill that? And uh, yeah, uh, there was another. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're trying to thought on that one. Another Brent Peterson. Uh, Brent, uh, Brent was, was, was very active, and uh, I even asked one of the officials one time, uh, and it was Kelly Sutherland, I said, what, what do you determine whether somebody gets a game misconduct? Um, he says, well, it's like this. If they come to me and say, hey, that call was horse manure, well, that's his opinion, it's different from mine. If they say your horse manure, that 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 calls for for touching the touching the hips and, and sending the guy off the ice. Um, being across the ice from Brent, I, I would watch him sometimes, and after a bad call, he would look at the referee, and all he would say, at least that I could make out by reading his lips, was that was awful. Not that you were, but that that call was awful. Yeah, yeah. And, and he said it with such emphasis that uh, I, I don't know how the referees look with themselves, frankly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Boy, I had another really good one that, uh, that came up when I was talking about Mahanas. Uh, scoring all these points. Oh! We had a game in the in the Rose Garden, and of course the logistics had me walk uh, a different way into the the, uh, the press area. I saw Ennis Mackey. He's back there sharpening skates. Well, nobody else is around. Ennis, how often do you sharpen skates? He said, "Well, it depends. Okay, on what." He says, well, a guy like Todd Robinson. Now, Todd played for us for, as a 16-year-old and also all the way up through his 20th year. Um, I don't think he ever made the NHL, made the AHL, but he set a record for the Winterhawks as a franchise for assists. Uh, his uh, fourth or fifth year, I believe he led the league 
and assists. He had this uncanny ability with his peripheral vision to see all of the ice and to know where the puck ought to go. Well, when Todd was, was on a roll, he'd ask Ennis to sharpen his skates like between periods, which Ennis would not do. And then he said on, on the other side, he had a guy like Tedarenko, defenseman. He says, I sharpen his skates once a month whether he needs them or not. So it, it all depended, I guess, on their role on the team uh, and certainly speed. Uh, it's always nice to have somebody that can just get after it and, and beat somebody to the puck in, uh, in our offensive end when the puck goes behind him. Uh, Lord knows we've had some, uh, some guys that, that could drop the gloves. Uh, I mentioned John Baduke earlier. Johnny was never afraid to fight. Uh, there were times when he did it knowing full well that he was probably going to get his lunch handed to him. But if it sparked up his teammates, he'd go ahead and do it. There was a time when uh, we were playing a team, I can't remember where they're from, but uh, first period again, John got into it. As soon as they got into the, uh, the penalty box, the guy yells across, hey, John, man, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't know it was going to be you. I just told myself that my first shift, the first guy that came along, I was just I was just going to plow right into him. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't trying to, you know, set you up or anything. And uh, John says, well, your left is improved. And uh, he says, oh, thanks. And, oh, by the way, my mom and dad said to say hello to you if I, if I talk to you. Uh, one of those conversations that we just had to laugh at because you, you normally don't get that from a couple of guys that, that just threw haymakers at each other. Uh, another guy that, that was fun to watch do that, he, he didn't do it, he did it often enough. Uh, Kale Hulse. Mm. Kale, pretty good size. He played in the uh, in the NHL for a while. Long time finished, Washington, yeah. Uh, finished uh, his career with uh, Nashville, with the Predators. Yeah. But Kale, Kale played right-handed, but he was a left-handed. So in the corner, or during a, a tough check, when the gloves dropped, all of a sudden this guy is facing some guy. Instead of positioning himself like this, He's like this. And if you haven't fought a lefty, uh, I understand. It throws an old. It, it, it absolutely off, yeah. does. Just enough so that Kale could get his legs in. Um, Kevin Pop. Kevin Pop was also a fan favorite. Uh, we got him from Seattle. And he... Uh, of course, back in the day, we still do, but we faced Seattle a lot. Yeah. And there was a, a player for them, his name I, I cannot recall, but he was a fan favorite in Seattle. And almost every game, they fought. And, and it wasn't just a tussle and throw a few punches. I mean, they beat the daylights out of each other. Um, Kevin was a little taller, had a longer reach. And, and there were times when he'd just, you know, have a hand out and, and, and be hitting him. And, and finally, you just turn and, and look at the linesman like, are you going to stop this? 
and he never came up. We just keep flailing. Uh, there were some classic tilts there, and uh, again, I'm not sure how far up the ladder he went. I, I don't believe he made the NHL, but uh, boy, they, they sure left it all on the ice here. And then, sometimes it, it's a forward. It doesn't have to be a defenseman. Bidner is, is quite, quite the proactive player. Yeah. So is uh, Shane Moore. Yeah. And uh, Seth Jones was, was more than capable of defending the... The faithful when he needed to when, when he was playing for Oh, my guy in that era was sneaky tough was uh, Pouliot. Oh, man. And I mean, so glad to see, yeah. He didn't fight much, but when he did, it's like, it seemed like he knew what he was doing. He fought just enough to keep the other guy honest, it seemed like. He was from the Andrew Ferentz school of playing smart, uh, playing some finesse. He could be physical when he needed to be. But mostly it was just about playing the man, not the puck, uh, taking on, if, if there's a break-in on his own goalie, take this man out. My understanding of the game is that it's the goaltender's job to worry about the puck. The defenseman take care of the men. And uh, and he did that pretty well. He was a very a great slap shot from the point on the power play. Uh, I'm glad to see he's going to be getting a shot with... Uh, with Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay. Well, and especially with Mike Justin yeah. being at Pittsburgh now. And another guy, you know, from tail end of your era that was kind of like that too was uh, Brett Bonich. You know, and, and it's sure I've looked, I've went back and watched a lot of a lot of his fights and I don't remember him in real time the same way that, you know, that the video shows, but it sure seemed like for a while there he was just one punching guys. You know, like it kind of they'd miss a little bit, whatever. And then when he connected with, once he connected, the other guy was just done. Well, he was so damn tall. I mean, yeah. he was probably what six four. He could have been six, six seven. Five, I think it could have been. And uh, yeah, he was he was the captain. Um, his final year, I believe, and went uh, on and played. Was it for San Jose or was it for? He's a, he's a Blues pick. He's, he's still ah. he's still in the minors, but I don't think I don't think he's ever quite made it yet. Yeah. Yeah. We um, Cody McLeod. Cody McLeod, pound for pound. And and I say that only because I don't want to belittle like Marty Standish. Yeah. Because Marty was too, but Cody had a little bit more muscle. He was a little bigger, so. The pound for pound thing, he had the advantage. Uh, I, I've seen him skate up uh, to the glass and look into the opposing penalty box and look at the player and just shake his head like, How could you? And after some yapping back and forth, uh, he'd either point to the scoreboard or he'd say, When you come out, I'll be here. There was another time he got into, uh, into some fisticuffs and they were in the penalty box and he yelled over at the guy that he just fought with and he said, hey, I don't mind doing this, but next time, let's not do it at the end of our shift. 
because he was breathing pretty heavy, and, and they they were throwing some big ones. You know, let's let's do it at the beginning of our shift so that we've got a little bit more energy to put into it. I understand that when he uh, when he went up to the bigs, was uh, playing for Colorado, and in their game against um, the Rangers, he got into it with Dubinsky. I've seen him fight Dubinsky, yeah. And uh, and the Colorado guys are smart enough to know the background that they both came from Portland. And when the fight was over and they separated him, uh, the uh, the on ice, the, the music guy, he played TNT, which I thought was uh, most appropriate. There was one, they played Detroit in the playoffs that year, mm -hmm. and uh, so with the Octopus, and uh, not it was that year, but I mean, they played, played against Detroit, and they threw the Octopus on the ice, and Cloud cruised over, and he picked up the Octopus, and he cruised by the, the Red Wings bench, shaking it at him kind of glaring and then he went and and he tried to and he and he chucked it down the tunnel between the between the benches there he damn near put it in the crowd if it was you know if it was a little offline of the throw <laughs> and, and that probably would have not not gone over well with the league but no, uh i put it right in a, throwing it throwing a dart right down the right well, down speaking the that, you probably weren't here long enough to know about the fish man from seattle I, I have actually seen, I've actually been not only a couple games in Seattle in my life, but I have seen the fish thrown on the ice in person. I've, al I've always known where he was in the building because he was hard to miss. And he would, he would do that in Portland. Yes, and always knew where he was in Portland. Uh, I never personally saw him throw a fish, but a fish always wound up on the ice. And uh, what, what, what a bizarre, uh, <laughs> bizarre tradition. We, um, other funny things that came up, Tomahawk was a unique mascot that we got. And, uh, and some folks don't realize it, but the, the mascot Tomahawk, it, that's a very physically demanding role uh, because of the outfit, because you do skate, because you do other things. Back in the day, um, before we had the new sideboards, uh, Tomahawk would come out and climb up and stand on top of the glass. On, on top of the glass. Um, that's difficult to do. I think I think it was maybe the first playoff series that I saw as a Winterhawks fan was, um, it was either that year or the next year, but it, it was Everett that was the first one I saw it. Remember when they, they had the lights down in the, in the Rose Guard, when they brought the lights up, he was kind of sitting up on like the corner there. Right. Where, I want to say the penalty box. Yep. And so and you didn't notice him. And then when they brought the lights up, he was kind of sitting there kind of trying to stoke the crowd. I remember it being a really impactful visual. And that was second generation Tomahawk um, when they made the change. Um, the guy that... Uh, that was Tomahawk was told how we were going to open, you know, uh, home opener and uh, the noise and spotlights and stuff. Nobody told him that somebody would be out at center ice with a microphone. So he's out there waving the flag, swings around the back of one net, waving, and then 
turns around and is skating backwards down the ice and whoop, hits that microphone wire and both feet come out from underneath him going the wrong way and uh, press all headbang. Uh, it's an auspicious first night for, for Generation 2 of, of Tomahawk. First Generation Tomahawk, um, he always made a point of uh, coming and reaching over the glass, especially when I was speaking, and just pouring a little popcorn. Where, where was he obtaining popcorn from? Well, it could have been from anybody. And he, just, just, just a handful of whatnot. <laughs> well, uh, we were night, it was in Memorial Coliseum. It was mascot night. And this, this particular night, we probably had... this. Wait, was this the time that he beat up Coolberg? Anyway, go on. Uh, well, there was that, and uh, I mean, they had uh, the San Jose Shark. He came up. Oh, really? They had Blaze. They had, uh, there was probably 12 to 15 mascots. Yeah, yeah that showed up well unbeknownst to me um, they all came up and, and lined up and as soon as there was a read coming I, I thought I saw him out of the corner of my eye he's hard not to miss so it was a fairly long read and it's basically it's promoting one of our sponsors or an event as I started reading they all came down and they had the large popcorn tufts each one of them had one and they would walk by and Tomahawk would take it and dump it and then dump it. I had 11 or 12 of those things dumped <laughs> over me. While I'm making the read, there was popcorn easily three to four inches deep everywhere around me in, in the penalty box area. And I, I didn't miss a word. But that was a lot of popcorn. That, that might be the saltiest story you've told yet. Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> All right, let me wet my whistle here. Very good. <laughs> so yeah, this this format, it's like I'm not okay. When I started uh, doing the games for the Winterhawks, I took over from uh, Mark Miller. Uh, Mark had uh, had known and worked for Brian Shaw for, for quite a while, and uh, I didn't know Brian that long or that well, but I, I will say he was unbelievably charismatic. Uh, he loved going out and pressing the flesh with the fans, um, was was proud of what the Winterhawks represented. With, with any business, it's repeat customers. That's, that's, that's exactly, true, right? but I mean, he, he thought that they were doing it the right way. But uh, Mark uh, started out by uh, helping to provide uh, novelties, uh, shirts, hats, that kind of stuff for the team uh, to sell. Uh, the business grew to where he was not only doing Winterhawk stuff, but doing things for other teams, uh, south of the Canadian border, uh, Tacoma, when they were uh, up there before they moved to Kelowna, and even the Thunderbirds in Spokane. Uh, he wound up being the assistant general manager to Brian, and then later on, after Mr. Shaw got... Uh, there you go. Sweet. Excellent. Very good. Thank you. One of my three favorite teams. Uh, I understand that. You betcha. 
Um, Mark Miller loved doing the games. And everybody told me, Dan, go try out because Mark's not very good. And, and <laughs> he, he even told me, he says, you know, you're, you're a lot better than I am, but I just love doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can respect that because I love doing it too. I, I love doing it for 18 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, there's a couple of different groups that are involved in what I did. Uh, first, there was the minor officials, the off-ice officials, which where I was included somebody manning each, uh, each penalty box. Uh, there was the official scorer. There was a uh, backup, and then there was a clock operator. And then, of course, high up off the ice, we had guys that uh, that followed the flow of the pucks so that they could uh, uh, give out assists. Uh, they could keep plus minus. Uh, and then, of course, we had the goal judges uh, sitting one behind each goal. So, quite quite a few uh, number of people. Then myself. I'm on a headset, and the headset goes to uh, generally uh, the the game director, so to speak. Uh, the game director might say, "Okay, for this stoppage, uh, let's have music. For the next stoppage, let's have an announcement. Um, gee, the the game is flowing as such. Let, let's have a pump-up song. Let's let's try to get the crowd involved." Uh, or. Um, maybe coordinate with Tomahawk and have him do a cheer. He would have a sign that would say, go, and on the other side was Hawks, and he would hold up to one side, and then the other, just, you know, Tomahawk doesn't talk. Um, so there would be myself, there would be the game director, there would be the music person, who sometimes was the game director, there was the person that ran the, the big reader board, because oftentimes if I did a promotion for, um, well, we used to have a, a monthly uh, booster club meeting at Star Street Pizza. We want to make sure that what I was saying corresponded with the logo that was up on the board. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then for a number of years, we had an organist in both buildings. I was going to ask about that. So uh, Mark Huth uh, was the organist. Uh, he worked for uh, Rogers Instruments out in Beaverton. And this was a company that provided... Uh, cathedral quality uh, keyboards, organs um, all over the world and Mark was uh, was a very capable organist Uh, there wasn't anything that he couldn't play if you put the music in front of him Uh, sometimes, and and there are musicians that are like this, sometimes he couldn't do something off off the cuff Uh, one night we were doing uh, some out of town scores and I said, Mark I'm going to read some scores. Right before I do that, why don't you do that? The sports center, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And he goofed it up pretty bad. And we never did it again, and I always gave him a bad time about it. But but he could play anything. And so it was, okay, at this next stoppage, we're going to have music, and it'll be recorded music. Uh, another stoppage, okay, this is going to be organ. And uh, so it was all kind of coordinated. And everybody else pretty much... Um, thought it would be really funny if they could say something when I'm talking and get me to screw up. Uh, sometimes they got close. There was another time I was getting ready to read the uh, very first reads uh, of the night. 
a lot of disclaimers. Uh, beware that it could leave the plane service. Uh, you can't leave the building. There's no smoking, for example. So I'm doing all those in, in the pretty set. I do them every game. I was just getting ready to uh, to start doing that. And I had my signature song. As they were getting ready for me to do that, I would have the recorded music guy play the opening of Tower of Power's You're Still a Young Man. A lot of horns. And, and that was sort of, okay, everybody, Dan, Dan's getting ready to talk. I think I've seen you pretend like you're the director of the symphony. Something like that. And yeah. And, and that was it was great. In fact, one year on uh, one of the nights, it was I think my 500th game. Uh, I had I got with a band director at Southbridge High School, and he wrote out a chart for that opening part with just the horns. There were 18 horn players that came and performed that live huh. at at the Coliseum. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ready to make the uh, make the announcements, and the organist he gets on the headset. Says Dan, did you hear the one about the lesbian trumpet player? Uh, there was a pregnant pause because I was laughing too hard to start, and they said, "Oh, we got him." It was the only time, but uh, and if I had problems with a particular name, they would invariably I would hear laughing on the headset because they knew that that I might have switched a vowel or put the wrong pronunciation on the wrong syllable. So, uh, yeah, and all these people we would get together and they would help with the flow of the game. Um, we also had to handle what happened during, during intermission. Uh, it used to be back in the old days that all of us down there at the scores table, we all got to walk away at the intermission, go grab a fresh cup of coffee or uh, use the bathroom. And uh, today, once we start, you can't leave until the game is over. Uh, there was also a um, uh, another good story about the music that we played. When I first started, I guess for years, both teams would come out and do warm-ups at the same time on the same sheet of ice. Well, they had some problems because teams would, there'd be line brawls during warm-ups. New, new Westminster. Yeah, well, I think you're probably right. So the league decided that, okay, instead of a 15-minute warm-up, each team gets 12. The visiting team comes out and does theirs first, and they get the whole sheet, and then they come off, and then the home team comes out, and they do theirs 12 minutes, and then, then we go from there. Well, because Mark Ruth was so good, when the visiting team came out to do their warm-ups, Mark would play like Broadway show tunes on the organ. And then, of course, when the Winterhawks came out, all the, the good pump-up songs. And there was a guy that was like the equipment manager for Kamloops, uh, Spike Wallace. And uh, Spike's been with the organization since Moses played left wing. He's been with them that long. But he got to noticing the difference. And we finally got a letter from the league because he had complained and that 
whatever music we play for one warm-up session is the same music we had to play for the other warm-up session. So, the subtle little things that you try to do, and sometimes you get caught, and sometimes it makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's not junior-related, but, you know, you always hear stories about the benches and the old building in uh, Denver, McNichols, and they weren't, the, the visitor's bench wasn't to regulation and, uh, and height. It was too short, so they were, with, <laughs> it would kind of tweak good. their knees. Yeah, yeah. And Scotty Bowman had a bench made that he would bring with them oh, wow. to set over on top of their bench and, and bring it up to, to, to the Regulation. proper height. He, he bitched and he bitched and they wouldn't do anything about it. He that just, sounds like Scotty Bowman. He just made his own damn bench. That's very clever. You know, I've heard the same thing with um, color schemes. Hmm. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks found out that, that that green and blue thing was a little too passive. So they went to that that yellow, red, and black motif. Are you familiar with what I'm yeah. talking about? And so when they made that change... The 90s, the, the, the Rocket Skate logo. Yeah. Yeah. When they made that change, they went into the visitor's locker room and painted the green and the blue that had been their old uniform colors because it was more passive. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of that too. Yeah, when the people did studies on what, yep. what colors were soothing and what colors what colors made you angry or whatever. Exactly. And try to try to play those try to play those mind games. And that's you know at, at what at what point did they get away from the org? Well, um, it's a great story. Mark um, was happy doing it, but he also had this burning desire to go back to school, get his degree, and then go to medical school. It was a full-time commitment. Mm. So he, he left the employment of Rogers Instruments and uh, went to Concordia to get his degree and then wound up graduating with honors from OHSU and is now the uh, head of internal medicine at uh, University Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin and uh, is well thought of by his fellow doctors and patients alike and Rogers figured that if we don't have anybody to play it, let's go ahead and take the unit out of both the Coliseum and, and the Rose Garden. So, so we never had our own our own instrument. It was uh, no. It was well. It, it was a great. I mean, we're talking a four four keyboard level with all the stops, and there wasn't anything he couldn't play on that. Uh, every year at the game closest to Halloween, Mark would uh, we give him one of the intermissions, and he would play the uh, Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Beethoven, which was always referred to as like the Phantom of the Opera piece. And he played the whole thing and hit all the buttons and stuff, and it was always amazing, and he always got a hell of a hand afterwards. Um, he had some fun things that he could do. When you have an organist, uh, also kind of like with baseball, um, if somebody, you know, tripped and fell down, you know, do a run. We were playing Spokane. Spokane had a goaltender, last name was McDonald. Well, we were lighting him up this one game, but we had the idea. It was like, oh, 
maybe towards the end of the second period. Hey, McDonald, what? When we do our goal song, and back in the day we didn't play TNT, uh, the song that I recall was uh, The Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. And it always starts out with where you hear uh, Roger Daltrey go, wow! And so uh, that's what we played. Well, before we played that, Mark Huth would go, dun, 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 dun. And then the, the crowd would join him on, E-I-E-I-O. And they just, they went nuts. So if we could, we could make a play on somebody's name, it, it was always a fun thing. Uh, another guy that you might be interested in remembering is uh, John... Um, he used to join Scooter uh, during the playoffs. John Kirby. John Kirby. John Kirby, first of all, is a very good broadcast, very good radio man. He played the organ in either the Fabulous Forum or at Dodger Stadium periodically. And so he had provided us with, in fact, I think I still have uh, in my briefcase at home, if we ever had a need for God Bless America, I've got John Kirby uh, on tape uh, leading in in various different keys so that it would fit whoever might be singing the song. Uh, another fun time was uh, the team had asked me since I was uh, doing the announcing to help coordinate uh, anthem singers to audition them, to listen to them. We wanted to get away from performances that were less than I don't want to say professional because yeah, yeah. we certainly didn't pay people, but uh, that were above board and did honor and respect to the song. And well, you, always people see, were you always see people moshing, you know, like well, and, and you know what I came up celebrities with is, and stuff. But. Well, and people who grew up with it think they know it because they've never looked at the music to find out maybe where the music isn't correct. And uh, what I tried to do is make sure that the, the right people and the right presentation was there. And, uh, and there were times when, well, I'll never forget one game. Uh, I myself, uh, we had a, a snow game. It snowed, and somebody had came in on the bus the day early, so the team was here. Uh, the, the refs were here. We only wound up with like 1,200 people in the game. But, oh my God, uh, we can't get an anthem singer. I said, well, I can do that. And I did, and uh, I don't want to sound boastful, but I, I did, I did a, a better than average job. And so, having that knowledge, and, and being able to work with people and, and uh, coordinate, bring them in, and doing sound check and that kind of stuff, uh, it was easy for me to do that. But there was a night where uh, I did the team introductions and introduced the coaches. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, please rise, remove your hats, and uh, join uh, Marita Marquardt in the singing of our national anthem. Over my headset, Dan, Marita's not here. Well, join with me in singing in the national anthem. And I stood up there and I banged it out, and there was a very nice applause, and the game started, and I sat there and my hands shook because. Uh, you always like to you know, prepare for that yeah, 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 so that yeah. you don't embarrass yourself. Uh, it's different if you're singing a Broadway show too. But when, when you're singing 
the national anthem. Yeah. That's the last song you want to screw. So I've seen you do it a few times. Have you? Yeah. I've seen you do it behind the glass in your right, right in your area, and then the, and then the times you know when you when step out on, the ice. on it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You come on up. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's always a bit of a thrill. Uh, and I love O Canada. O Canada yeah. is so much easier song to sing. And uh, it's done beautifully. In fact, we had a situation one night, first game of the playoffs. Um, there was a gal that uh, had auditioned, and I put her in, and she was going to do um, O Canada first, and then the Star Spangled Banner. Well, she started out doing O Canada, and then had a problem with the words. And as soon as she stuttered a little bit... Oh, it goes, it goes south at that point, yeah. The fans immediately jumped in and like picked picked her up carried the song to where she could take it and, and, and finish the song out and as soon as that got done um, or at the first intermission uh, photojournalist Ron Quant who did some great work not only for the Winterhawks uh, but also uh, with, the, with the Trailblazers he came up to me and said I just think it's really appropriate that in the first playoff game the first assist of the game was to the crowd on the national anthem. We have some knowledgeable, knowledgeable hockey people, and 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 they know, you know, from where hockey came from, and and they honor those players, especially the kids that that come down out of Canada to play. It used to be that was pretty much it. It was an oddity to have uh, a Northwest kid or somebody from Minnesota, and boy, after a while, we've had them from California and and everywhere. So, Zednik, Richard Zednik was the uh, the foreign player I was oh, okay. trying to mention yeah, yeah. earlier. I'm just looking uh, him up today. It didn't didn't learn a whole lot of English real well, but I remember he got a penalty, came into the box, sat down, tossed his stick, and with a very thick foreign accent said, "Fucking brutal," <laughs> and we, we, we died. Anytime a foreign player ever came into the box again, all of us would sort of mumble, uh, not terribly loud, but yeah, fucking brutal. <laughs> so. That's classic right there. Yep. That's good. 